0: Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at the Empirefiles.tv. In a system that puts profits over everything, small gangs of billionaires are given free reign to plunder the planet. One of the richest power clicks in the empire's inner circle is also imperiling all life on earth at an alarming rate only to pad their vaults with cash. In the United States, the oil industry is a giant cash-engorged beast, with the loyal servitude of the state at its beck and call. Its vast accumulation of wealth has led to its vast accumulation of power and influence in today's society. A resource that's the pivot of the modern industrial economy has made every oil-rich nation a prize to be won by every aspiring world empire. In the past half century, the U.S. has sacrificed untold lives, limbs and resources in its scramble to seize larger and larger pieces of the market. From funding dictators to fueling proxy battles to all-out wars of aggression. Entire countries like Saudi Arabia, Azerbaijan, Qatar and others have been established as oil monarchies, owned by American oil corporations, armed to the teeth by imperial sponsors. Every president from Truman on officially dubbed access to oil a matter of national security, meaning worth going to war for. The oil industry's vast power was pioneered by the son of a snake oil salesman, John D. Rockefeller, a cutthroat capitalist who bought his first refinery in Cleveland in 1865, later named the Standard Oil Company. Many emerging oil companies were competing, but Rockefeller's Standard Oil tipped the scales They used an illegal deal with railroad companies for cheaper transportation to bully more than 20 refineries into selling themselves to Standard Oil under threat of having to compete with impossibly low oil prices. Other strong-arm tactics were used to buy up the industry. For example, if a refinery didn't want to sell itself, Rockefeller would buy the pipeline then just cut off its oil supply. The dried up refineries had no choice but to submit to Standard Oil's clutches. By 1879, Rockefeller's shady gangster tactics, with the help of big banks and lavishly bribed politicians, allowed Standard Oil to gobble up 90% of the country's oil refining industry. With over 100,000 workers under his belt, Rockefeller was harshly anti-union and swashed any attempts for workers to organize. The modern-day monopoly was born, one of the economy's biggest sectors in the briefcase of a handful of fat cats and top hats. This self-serving clique of oil tycoons not only subverts our supposed democracy, whose thirst puts us on the path of more disastrous, profit-driven wars, but it imperils all living things on Earth. To understand more about the tyranny of the oil industry in today's political climate, I spoke to someone who spent years reporting on oil, Antonia Juhasz, a journalist and author including The Tyranny of Oil, written at the end of the Bush administration.
1: The frame of the tyranny of oil was to say one political power, political influence, and decision-making leading us into wars aggressively pushing climate change, climate destruction, human rights abuse, um, economic abuse, political abuse, and that we wanted to end that tyranny. Unfortunately, the Obama administration, while it's not the Bush administration and isn't nearly Quite as wed uh, to the industry as the Bush presidency was, and certainly financially isn't tied in the same way. The Obama administration has been unable to loosen the chains of that tyranny. And such that in the United States, under Obama, we've actually reached in June the second highest point of US production of both oil and natural gas. Um, in our history and the highest rates of exporting of those products. How dangerous is offshore deep drilling as opposed to conventional drilling? The age of easy oil is over. And if you're anyone who's ever lived where oil is explored for, produced, transported, uh, refined, the idea of easy oil doesn't make a lot of sense. But from the industry's perspective, it means you know, they were able to put a pipe into the ground Um, A big reservoir of oil was there, it was easy to pump out, and they had a willing, friendly government allowing them to do that. That age is over. Now most of the world's oil, first of all, is spoken for, and the oil that is left is more difficult to get to, uh, more environmentally destructive to get to, um, often in places where you need to fight a war to acquire it, or incredibly um, technologically complex to try to reach. And deep offshore drilling, is an area that the industry has increasingly expanded into, moving further and further out, and deeper and deeper into oceans. The drilling moved exponentially further out and deeper, as the industry got more money and it needed to hunt for harder to get at oil. And with that came an increasing number of problems, blowouts, spills, disasters.
0: This became evident to the world on April 20th, 2010 when one of BP's deepwater rigs exploded and unleashed 210 million gallons of toxic sludge into the ecosystem, causing the biggest accidental oil spill in history. The uninterrupted spewing of crude for three straight months caused untold damage to the environment, killing over a million birds, according to some estimates. Besides the massive destruction to marine and wildlife, the impact on humans was catastrophic. The corporation sprayed 2 million gallons of a dispersant called Corexit to thin the oil, which made it 52 times more toxic. Millions of families whose jobs and livelihoods were interdependent on Gulf marine life were decimated. Many now suffer life-altering health effects.
1: 11 men died, but then what we learned is that the industry also had no plan for what to do in the wake of a deep water spill. And what we also learned was that they then decided That they would learn on the fly and try and figure it out as they went. What they figured out was that they couldn't control a deep water spill and the only thing they knew how to do, the only thing that ultimately closed the well, and it took three months for this to happen, was to drill a second well, drill a whole another set of pipe, intersect with the original one and close it up. In the interim, the largest offshore drilling oil spill in history Uh, unfolded. Um, I was actually in a submarine at the site of the BP oil spill and what exists down there is basically the life that could get away got away and the life that couldn't was just nuked by the oil and there is a massive blanket of oil on the bottom of the ocean it will probably be there forever.
0: Greg Pallast, another journalist who's been on the ground investigating major oil spills from Axon Valdez to BP, has found a common thread in a common disaster.
2: This is not the first time that there was a blowout of a deep water well by BP and an explosion. they had had one only 17 months earlier in the Caspian Sea, and it was completely covered up. It was covered up by BP. It was covered up by the government of Azerbaijan, what I call the Islamic Republic of BP. They completely own that state. And it was also, it turns out, when I read the WikiLeaks documents, it was covered up by the United States State Department. Condoleezza Rice and the State Department knew that there had been a BP blowout because they were using a quick dry cement. It
0: was to save money. With no accountability, the spills by cost-cutting big oil have only continued. And they're seemingly rewarded for their actions. The Defense Department has more than doubled its contracts with BP since the disaster. The fines imposed on the company were merely a permit for plunder.
1: The largest fine that's been imposed in environmental history was imposed on BP. And it's about, I'm um, not sure what it added up to right now, but it's about $17 billion. And that sounds like a lot of money, because it is a lot of money. But this was also the worst environmental disaster, certainly the worst oil spill to hit the United States, the worst offshore oil spill in the world. And we have laws. And those laws say, one that's very specific, if you spill oil, you pay a per barrel of oil fee for doing that. And then on top of that, As a result of the Exxon Valdez oil spill, and actually George Bush senior as president pushed through really important legislation that said basically if you cause an oil spill you have to put everything back to zero. You have to put it back the way it was. Those fines, just straight application of our laws, should have brought BP up to more around the range of $200 billion, which meant that it would have really challenged its ability as a company to continue operating. And that's not what happened. So BP did face a very big fine. But in BP's own words, it was manageable. And so it definitely very much brings to mind the power of the banking sector, which is, you know, are these companies just so big, so powerful, that they are bigger than the government's capacity to control them? And actually, if you look at US history, We've faced this position before, and in response to this, the control of these companies over the Senate, we had the populist movement in the United States. We had mass protests and uprisings and shutdowns and people in the streets and people demanding change, and we actually did get not revolutionary change, but um, regulatory changes, and we got our first antitrust laws and the first focus of the antitrust law was breaking up the Standard Oil Company with the very specific intention that it needed to be smaller so that the government could be bigger than it. But all those pieces of the Standard Oil Company are names that are gonna be familiar now. They were Exxon, they were Mobil, which is now Exxon Mobil. All the sort of pieces of Standard Oil have been allowed to morph back together and form these massive major companies and BP is actually an example of that because BP only came into the United States by buying Arco, which was a major U.S. um, oil company, which also was a a spin-off of Standard.
0: The growth of monopolies in the late 19th century was answered by an anti-monopoly movement, by both populist farmers driven into abject poverty by monopolies and sectors of the capitalist class that wanted a fair fight Politicians were further enticed by antitrust laws through their application of breaking up labor unions, which they described as human cartels. By 1911, the Supreme Court ruled that Standard Oil had to be broken up to restore competition in the industry. The initial breakup of Standard Oil's monopoly was of no bother to Rockefeller. He was soon after crowned the richest man in the world, the world's first billionaire. A billionaire at a time when the average annual income in America was $520. While sitting idle in their mansions, the Rockefeller family had unprecedented wealth poured in their bank accounts. Most of the global industry owned by just three pampered bloodlines. The Rocks, Rothschilds, and the Dutch Royal Family. Standard Oil was broken up into 34 independent companies. But in a generous gift, every Standard Oil owner was promised part of each of the new company formed. But the antitrust laws were only a reset button. Those 34 new companies set out to eat their competition, just as before. After being knocked into pieces, the oil monopoly Gollum began to pull itself back together. When something, anything, threatened total dependency on oil, they went after it. The landscape of America's cities had been defined by their decades-long fight to strangle any mass public transportation plan. For example, an entire system of electric streetcars were sabotaged and destroyed by General Motors and Standard Oil, for which they were found guilty of conspiracy in 1949. The industry has amassed so much power, oil now regulates the government. The U.S. military is the world's biggest consumer of oil and its biggest polluter, yet it stands shielded from regulation. From the Clean Water Act to the Clean Air Act, Nearly every large-scale piece of environmental legislation includes sweeping exemptions for dirty energy. A predictable outcome for an industry that's mastered the dark underbelly of D.C. bribery. The two are so cozy, three out of every four dirty energy lobbyists used to work in government. More than 430 congressmen have become industry lobbyists. But the corruption doesn't get more blatant than at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, Regulation and Enforcement where more than a dozen former officials went on to make six-figure salaries in big oil. Everyone gets perks for playing the game. Over $35 million will be stuffed into the pockets of 2016 candidates alone by the toxic industry. But the cost hasn't gone unrewarded. For years, big oil has greased industry executives into the highest levels of government to ensure oil remains at the forefront of US energy policy. The Bush family dynasty is one of oil, and both presidential administrations did everything in their power to line the tar-filled pockets of oil CEOs. From former Halliburton CEO Dick Cheney running an energy task force to Condoleezza Rice sitting on the board of Chevron, tens of billions of dollars in tax breaks and subsidies were given to toxic oil and gas corporations, streamlining their plunder of the planet. The relationship's mutually beneficial, Evidenced when Cheney raked in $40 billion for Halliburton's spin off KBR and no bid contracts to rebuild Iraq after he bombed it. Under Obama and an array of newly available drilling opportunities, the US has become the world's top oil and gas producer. The number one new source of super profits became fracking, a highly destructive and dangerous method of natural gas extraction.
1: Because of the speed with which this production has come in, Um, North Dakota went from a state that basically wasn't producing oil to being the second-largest oil-producing state in the country. Um, It's mass infrastructure moving in. So what happened was that North Dakota suddenly became a mass fracker. And in North Dakota, that means an enormous amount of flaring, which are the huge bursts of flames that come out of the ground that are burning natural gas off at the source. Um, And you had what was beautiful... Uh, land, buttes and wild mustangs and um, and, and an area that's um, a Native American reservation where uh, communities have lived for a very long time, just now turned into a frack zone. In Oklahoma, you have 600 earthquakes that have happened in the last year in one state. So that's three a day um, people you have never, again, again, have never had oil production there. Suddenly there's oil, and suddenly there's three earthquakes a day because of the consequences of the fracking. It's the dumping of the wastewater that leads to uh, hard, huge impacts on the earth, and then it leads to these earthquakes. And so you're starting to see, though, whereas in other countries where <clears throat> people have spent a long time being exposed to oil production and the harms of oil production and have resisted, In the United States, oil production tended to be very isolated. But now it's everywhere.
0: With oil's expanding wealth comes expanding power for its owners.
2: Oil is the political process. It's not influence. It is the political process. I mean, we saw, for example, during the Bush administration that the oil industry was our government. There was no difference. Uh, Now it's it's, uh, more subtle, but the, the influence of energy is powerful and still there. It's just more complex how it operates. If you look at the, for example, the Republican uh, Party right now, you have every presidential candidate, uh, you know, endorsing the XL pipeline, more than endorsing, falling in love. I mean, Ted Cruz actually said, you have to love the XL pipeline. He sends valentines to a pipe, right? <laughs> I mean, this is how extreme it's gone, so that they're, they're, you know, they're kissing the pipeline, they're loving the pipeline, like why? And the answer is a four-letter word, K-O-C-H, the Kochs. Now, follow how this operates and how this affects our foreign policy, okay? The Kochs' big refinery, they bought a big refinery on the Gulf Coast of Texas, and they were losing a fortune because even though it's in Texas, it can't use Texas oil. And so what they had to use was heavy, heavy oil. They could only get it from Venezuela. Um, they charge a premium. It used to be a discount. So they, have to get rid of, they had to get rid of Chavez and Maduro and that progressive government in Venezuela. They could either do it by assassination as a, Pat Robertson suggested, that didn't work. Or they can uh, manipulate the country's political system. That may work or may not work. But all else fails, get the oil from somewhere else, Canada. At a super steep discount, that gives you the XL pipeline. And that's the whole reason for the XL pipeline. The Kochs don't own the pipeline, but they're the ones who get the oil. Each Koch brother will make about a billion dollars extra a year if the XL pipeline goes through. Now, you say, well, what about the Democrat side? There's an opposition? Well, yes and no. The Democrats have their own alliances, like with BP uh, and the current administration. So for example, uh, President Obama, Mr. Let's, uh, not over, let's not cook the planet. Uh, global warming is a terrible threat to everyone. And yet, he approved drilling in the Arctic. I was up in the Arctic Circle actually, uh, where they're going to drill at uh, Koktovik, and uh, I, got, I was called up by the Inuit speakers, uh, Itok, the great uh, whale hunter, and he said, Look, uh, we're done. We're finished as a people if they drill here. I mean, and also, if you have a spill in the Arctic Ocean, it goes under the ice cap to Norway. There couldn't be a dumber, stupider, more dangerous, poisonous idea than drilling in the Arctic, and yet, you have a Democratic president that approved it. So that only happens because you had a tremendous influence by BP and Shell in uh, in the current administration. The Cokes have uh, tremendous influence on mostly on the Republican side. But, you know, they are not Republicans. Uh, Coke oil is not a Republican operation. They are for Cokes. And uh, it's, uh, you know, they don't bet on the horses, they own the whole damn racetrack.
0: Of course, the majority of scientists in the world have agreed to the consensus of human-caused climate change or human exacerbated climate change. Americans seem uniquely ignorant in this analysis. I wanted you to kind of analyze how the the media disinformation campaign works on
2: behalf of the oil industry. One of the ways it does it is it buys up a lot of academics. Uh, Almost every biologist in America uh, is on the payroll of British Petroleum through um, a half-billion-dollar grant to the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, which mm-hmm. controls almost all the science of, of oil spills. Now, what's happening with climate? Uh, excuse me, with climate science is again, it's not just air pollution; it's money pollution of science. So they will take a dissenting scientist, and they will blow up their, they'll blow up their, uh, their. Um, Stature
0: earlier when you said national petroleum radio, of course, you're talking about NPR and, yes. and this is the most amazing report ever right in the wake of the BP oil spill They have on the scientist who's talking about don't worry the oil's just gonna be eaten by oil-eating bacteria
2: Yes, and and talk about that specific report and what's behind it a half billion dollars dumped into the Lawrence Livermore laboratory and those scientists under Livermore's control took over the airways. Obviously BP worked very hard to get their guys out there, and n- never on NPR, which was leading this charge, that Mother Earth cleans itself, never once did I hear that these guys were paid for by British Petroleum. That's important. Ivor van Heerden, who was head of the Hurricane Center at the uh, Louisiana State University. After Katrina, he said the reason why this city was underwater was because the oil industry had destroyed the mangroves. All the drilling and dragging of uh, drilling rigs, et cetera, had basically destroyed 100 miles of swamp protection. People say, why do people live in New Orleans underwater? Well, the Gulf Coast was brought to the edge of New Orleans by the oil industry. Von Heerden had raised the alarm one month before um, Katrina drowned New Orleans. He said this city could be underwater in 30 days. 30 days later, it was underwater. He said that on British television. He was right. Instead of building him a statue and say, thank you for telling us, trying to save this city, they shut down the hurricane center. Can you imagine Louisiana shutting down its hurricane center and they replaced it with a wetland center? What was going on here? They got a check from Chevron Oil. Chevron said we will give you a we will pay for and fund a giant center, academic center if we get to pick the professors and you close down Von Heerden and his hurricane center. So Louisiana State University lost its hurricane center if you can imagine for this oil company, basically propaganda forum, where, they get, where the oil companies literally pick the professors. Remember, we ha- don't have an investigative media in America. Our reporters don't go after facts. They're not reporters, they're repeaters. Instead, what they do is, they say, well, on one hand this, on one hand that. Well, some scientists believe that the Earth is getting hot and, and we're doing this to Mother Earth. And then there's some guys who say no. And they don't bother to tell you that those guys who say no are on the payroll of the oil companies.
0: We don't have time for the super elites at the helm to suddenly care about the environment. Drastic, immediate action is needed to even begin to turn around the situation.
1: The United Nations last year came up with its most definitive um, statements on what was needed to basically avert the worst consequences of climate change. And the action that was made very clear was that three-fourths of known existing fossil fuels need to stay in the ground. That's it. That's the only way not to avert harm caused by climate change, not to avert the problems that we're already experiencing, but to avert the worst predicted consequences of climate change. So that means that where we need to start from now is that the resource needs to stay in the ground.
0: But the empire is doing the opposite of that chasing profits at any cost. 20,000 oil spills are reported each year in the United States alone, not to mention millions of gallons spilled across the world in once pristine habitats like the Amazon rainforest. In the Niger Delta, they have had the shocking equivalent of an Exxon Valdez spill every single year for the past 50 years, courtesy of untouchable overlords like ExxonMobil and Shell. More oil spilled from train crashes in 2013 than in the previous four decades combined, where more than one million gallons of crude oil spilled from derailed train cars across the country. In 2014, the number hit another record high. Yet rail remains the number one preferred mode of transportation for oil companies. Hundreds of thousands of miles worth of pipelines traverse the length of the U.S., A stretch of ticking time bombs, a potential disaster run by unregulated, cost-cutting owners. Between 2008 and 2012, over 500 oil industry workers lost their lives in on-the-job accidents, a rate eight times the average of other industries. So much detriment for a resource that's not even necessary. If this system put the needs of people and the environment first, there would be little dependency on such a damaging fuel source. Stanford engineers have already developed a cost-effective, state-by-state plan to transition the entire U.S. to all renewable energy sources by 2050. The cost of the Iraq War alone could have covered all global investments in renewable energy needed to halt climate change trends. We see that big oil can buy the politicians who regulate it, have the military pledge allegiance to its interests be shielded from pollution restrictions, leech off U.S. tax dollars, control mass media, crush alternative energy, and avert punishment for all of the crimes it commits. It is utterly insane that small boardrooms of self-serving billionaires are empowered to act as though the only future that exists is in their stock portfolios. They have been destroying lives and habitats for over a century, and now their unfettered greed is a threat to human civilization itself. Their path towards a tar-covered, uninhabitable dystopia won't be reversed unless the power structure is flipped. We can't fight the rule of oil tycoons without fighting the system of corporate empire that dutifully serves them. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at Empirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire, both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.